well-regulated militia be necessary to the security of a free state. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Welcome to another edition of Bearing Arms, Cam and Company. My name is Cam Edwards, and yes, I know I said yesterday that uh, I'd see you guys on Wednesday, but I had the opportunity to uh, sit down and have a chat with Virginia Attorney General Jason Biaras on uh, Thursday afternoon, and there was no way... That I was going to wait until Wednesday to share that with you. Uh, so we're doing a, a special Friday cam and company to uh, bring that interview to you. We'll get to that in just one second. Before we do, Biden's America is crushing us. You've got companies laying off tens of thousands of workers, one after the other. Americans working two jobs just to get by. Inflation, pushing hardworking families to the brink. Hell, just look at the price of lunch me the next time you go to the grocery store. And a digital dollar could be coming down the pipeline to completely destroy our way of life. The truth is, you need a plan. You know it. And I know it. And that's why you should call Gold Co. So you can diversify your savings and investments with gold and silver before things get worse. They're a six-time Inc. 5000 winner, 2022 Company of the Year, with thousands of five-star reviews. And they've helped people like you and me place over $1 billion in gold and silver. They're offering up to $10,000 in free silver while supplies last. And if you call them today, qualified callers will get a free Ronald Reagan half-ounce silver coin. So don't wait. Call Gold Co. at 855-412-3806 today. That's 855-412-3806. So, as you know, here at Bearing Arms, not only do I write about Second Amendment news, but I also write about what's going on in terms of crime and public safety, because, of course, gun control advocates blame you and I and our Second Amendment rights for virtually all crime in this country, right? If we were only going to ban our way to safety, all the things would be so much better. And I disagree, fundamentally. One of the programs that I've talked about uh, over the years is something called Operation Ceasefire. This is a program that has been around since the 1990s. It has been put in place in dozens of cities across the country. It has a proven track record of success. It is not a magic bullet. It's not like you just implement this and all of a sudden things get better. Uh, There is a process. You've got to put egos aside. It's interagency cooperation. It's cooperation between law enforcement and the community at large. There are a lot of working parts. But when it works, holy cow, does it work. And in Virginia, Operation Ceasefire has now been underway for about six months. And Attorney General Jason Meares is spearheading this effort. So I had the opportunity again to sit down with him and talk about how Operation Ceasefire is already having an impact in the Commonwealth of Virginia and the opportunity to hopefully expand this program going forward. Take a look and a listen. General Meares, thanks so much for your time today. Really appreciate you joining the show. Great to be with you. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I am a big fan of Operation Ceasefire. I have uh, been a proponent of this for a number of years. As a Second Amendment advocate, I get so tired of hearing, well, all you guys talk about is just more guns, more guns, more guns. Um, I know for a fact that, uh, you know, fewer guns doesn't mean less crime. We've seen this in cities, you know, as far ranging as San Francisco to, to, to New York City. Instead, I think we need to be focusing on that core group of violent offenders And that's exactly what Operation Ceasefire does, not only prosecuting those offenders when they fail to take advantage of the opportunities that are provided to them, but again, giving them the chance to turn their life around. How long has Operation Ceasefire been underway in Virginia? Well, we finally got we got money through the budget uh, with the governor. But I mean, to your point, you're right. Uh, Even though New York City, Chicago, uh, San Francisco and others have some of the strictest gun laws uh, you would find, I think most people recognize they don't feel safe when they go there. And the reality, really, when you look from an 80,000 feet view is there's multiple studies that have shown roughly three to 5% of violent offenders are committing roughly 50% of the violent crime. 
So if you want to lower violent crime, you go after that three to 5%. And what we have seen is really, uh, you know, they say the only thing you learn from history is nobody learns from history. And yet a lot of these, both social justice prosecutors and a lot of left-wing politicians, a lot of these cities adopting these policies, which were all tried in the 1970s, cashless bail, early release of violent offenders, not prosecuting anything with mandatory minimums. And in the 1970s, they tried all this. It led to a crime explosion. We learned some really, really hard lessons. And really what you saw was between 1992 and 2018, crime dropped in this country. I would note for your audience that at the same period that between 1992 in 2018, violent crime was dropping, including gun violence, gun ownership was increasing at a drastic level. So you had a drastic increase of gun owners in America, but gun violence was dropping. There's a lot of reasons for it, but one of the main was going after these repeat violent offenders. We got away from that starting around 2018, and we're seeing in so many localities and around the country, they've gotten away from this. And so you layer on top of that, We've gone through a lot as a country post-COVID. The, the COVID shutdown was like squeezing the air in a balloon, right? They took all these drastic measures. They shut down our schools. They shut down our businesses. They shut down our churches. And if you've ever had a loved one that has dealt with either addiction or depression, they'll tell you social isolation, that is the absolute worst thing you can ever do to somebody struggling with either of, the, either of those. That's what we did to 300 million Americans. So we're laying on top of that a lot of young people uh, are struggling with both addiction, depression, and then you layer on top of just the economic uh, disruptions that we're having right now. There's a lot of a lot of young people that are hurting. So what we decided is Operation Ceasefire is kind of two parallel tracks. Um, for a lot of the young people, the one thing I realized talking to a lot of former gang members that are now gang intervention specialists is they have said, listen, the best outlets for people to not join a gang, because when you're a teenager, hey, you were there, I was there, you have this overwhelming desire to want to belong, right? And the idea is the three best outlets for somebody not to join into a youth gang is after school sports, after school activities, and your churches. Well, Cam, what was closed for 18 months in this country? Right. All of those. Yeah. So the gangs didn't shut down. They use this to recruit. And so Operation Ceasefire is both putting a lot of resources on both the reopening Boys and Girls Clubs and others to really target these youth uh, from at-risk situations. And so we're basically both communicating to the young people, hey, we're investing in you. We're going to give you opportunities. We're going to do mentorship programs. But if you cross that line and you're now one of those repeat violent offenders, we're going to prosecute you. And I think that is the way that you try to lower gun violence. That was the 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 program. You don't go after law-abiding innocent gun owners. You go after the those that are the, the lawbreakers. And that was something the governor Youngkin and I talked a lot about. We launched Operation Ceasefire late. We announced our intention to launch it late uh, in the fall of last year, had to get through the General Assembly session with a budget. We're now finally fully ramped up with both our prosecutors and our group violence intervention coordinator. So it's a multifaceted um, approach. There's a couple of things I, I can get into even more that we're doing, but that's really from the 80,000 feet view is, hey, let's go after these repeat violent offenders. Let's help our youth get through this post-COVID period where they're not being attracted to gangs. But these repeat violent offenders, let's get them, let's get them out of our streets and our neighborhoods where they're creating such pain and mayhem. And so over the past six months, I uh, was looking at a story a few weeks ago, I think from WTBR in Richmond. Um, your office has brought 98 
cases to, to prosecution around the state. Is that right? We've already had 98 indictments. What we did is we would vary their 12 targeted ceasefire cities. These are areas that have an unacceptable level of, of, uh, of violence. And uh, we're really targeting our resources there, um, including our prosecutors. So we have a lot more to come. I have a lot. I just set up uh, my weekly report of getting updated and all the different active investigations. And so we're going after those repeat violent offenders. And that is how you lower gun violence. It's not going after the law abiding. It's going after the law breaking. And that's why these are the type of proven solutions that worked that we know will work. And we're excited about as we ramp this up moving forward. You know, and, and what's crazy to me about this is that this is a system first put in place in Boston back in the 1990s. So you had the Boston Police Department, you had researchers like David Kennedy from the uh, John Jay College of Criminal Justice, I believe it was at Harvard at the time. This wasn't something that came from the right necessarily. But when Republicans started proposing this a couple of years ago in the General Assembly, holy cow, you would have thought that Wayne LaPierre came up with this plan because the Democrats were so resistant to a program that is already in place and has been in place for decades in a lot of Democrat-run cities and has a proven track record of success. That was what was so frustrating to me because it took multiple years to get the funding for Operation Ceasefire to even begin, right? It did. When I, I served in the Virginia House before I got elected attorney general, it was something that I helped to carry, and it died. And what, what I've realized quickly is the far left has put themselves in an ideological straitjacket where they're simply incapable of supporting enhanced penalties for, for violent criminal behavior. Um, you know, the example I use doesn't directly touch on gun crime to show you how ideologically out of tune they are with, the, I think, the American people is when I was also in the General Assembly, I helped carry a bill that said, listen, if I'm a drug dealer, I lace these drugs with fentanyl and I kill somebody, I could be charged with felony homicide. It's something law enforcement has been asking for repeatedly. Uh, a lot of states uh, have this on their books. And we put it in the in the bill to the assembly. It passed with pretty wide bipartisan support, got to Ralph Northam's desk. He vetoed the bill. Um, now, it, we have a new governor. It, it passed again under this new governor. He said, as it gets to my desk, I, I met with some moms, three moms that know the same dealer who killed all three of their children. Because if I lay something with fentanyl, it's like giving you rat poison. Yeah. Well, it gets through the Republican controlled state house, gets to the Democratic Senate. And it died in a party line vote. And there were 15 Democrats that had voted for the exact same bill just a couple of years ago when I was in the House that voted against it. It just shows you how much they have shifted in just four years. And for your listeners, I have an idea. In 1992, the total drug deaths in America was about 5,000. Total drug deaths in America last year was 108,000. So it's like chemical warfare of what the cartels are doing on America. That just shows you that's one story of any that really shows they're just against anything that has enhanced penalties for violent offenders. And um, they actually pushed a host of, of legislation to make it easier for these for the early release of violent offenders to get back on, on the streets. And um, oftentimes what we've seen is when that happens, uh, innocent, more innocent victims occur. And so we want to be a voice for the victims and stand up against violent crime. Are you starting to see a change in heart now that Operation Ceasefire is underway and is actually active in some of these communities like Richmond and Petersburg, Roanoke and, and other places? I, I will tell you this, Cam, this is one of the, you know, I'll go anywhere and talk with anybody because uh, I think my principles are the principles that that both respect your constitutional liberties, respect your dignity and lift the most people out of poverty. 
Uh, I remember distinctly going into uh, Portsmouth, which is one of our target cities very early on. And we had a town hall at an urban church with the, the sitting sheriff and the, and the police chief of Portsmouth. And, you know, you never know how you're going to be received. Am I going to be criticized for being very much about uh, public safety being a priority? But the reality is that the three of us on stage, the, the people that were that were getting the most criticized from the crowd were the local law enforcement. Wondering, Where are our cops? Where are the police? Why are these people getting back on the street victimizing more people? They were very, very upset. And what I've realized is there's such a disconnect between the way the legacy media covers public safety mm -hmm. and the way those that are actually living in high crime communities are talking about it. Because when you go to these high crime communities, they say, hey, listen, we need more cops. We want SROs in our school. We want a more visible presence. We want to go after these repeat violent offenders. We don't we're we're we actually part of Operation Ceasefire is we've set up this witness protection program in Virginia because we were finding out a lot of these social justice warrior prosecutors are letting these guys out on bail immediately. Well, who wants to go testify in court if they know that this person's back on the street and can intimidate him or worse to keep him from testifying? And so there's such a disconnect when you talk to those that are actually the victims of crime or in high crime area. And the way the, the the legacy liberal media will cover it, it's a very, very different reality. Because here's the other sad thing is, while there is some data that 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 um, poverty can produce crime, there's enormous data, enormous data that shows crime produces poverty. High crime areas produce poverty because two-thirds of all new jobs in America, it's not Amazon, it's not the big corporations, the two-thirds of all new jobs in America are created by small business owners those entrepreneurs. Guess what? Small business owners don't locate in high crime areas and they leave high crime areas. And you're seeing that all over the country in a lot of these areas with these social justice prosecutors allowing them to basically legalize theft. And so um, part of the reason why we're passionate about tackling the violent crime is it, it makes those communities livable again and businesses mm -hmm. start thriving and they'll relocate. This is an amazing country. I don't want anybody looking over their shoulder in fear. And some of these communities, folks are a little bit looking over their shoulder in fear. And I think that's unacceptable. Uh, listen, I'm right there with you. And, you know, you talk about the legacy media. I think part of that is exacerbated by the anti-gun or gun control ideology that insists all you got to do is put these, you know, common sense restrictions on the books, right? If we just had universal background checks, if we just had magazine bans, if we just had this gun ban over there, or that gun ban over here, if we stop concealed carry holders from being able to carry, oh, well, that would solve the problem. What you just talked about, though, is, is how the system works in practice, right? And gun control advocates, they love to talk about putting laws on the books, but they hate to talk about how laws get enforced. Uh, and we saw this going back to the Bruin decision, right? I mean, they don't want to talk about stop and frisk. They don't want to talk about over police. They don't want to talk about all of these, how gun control laws get enforced. But when you're talking about fighting violent crime, again, you know, approaching it from the, the perspective of somebody who lives in one of these communities, who's afraid to let their kids play out on the street, you know, it's not that they hate police. They might feel like the police don't give a damn about them or give a damn about crime in the community. But when a program like Operation Ceasefire comes in, when all of a sudden there is money available to say, listen, if you testify in open court, we will protect you. Yeah. And we need your help and we need your cooperation to put these people away for a prolonged period of time. You know, it, it, it strikes me as just a much more realistic approach to fighting violent crime than this ideological idea of banning our way to safety. Well, and, 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 and to follow up on, on, the, on the point you alluded to, and then you have prosecutors, these left-wing prosecutors that won't prosecute 
entire categories of crime. Uh, we had a, I did a town hall with the Fairfax um, uh, Police Association, and one of the most heartbreaking things for me was hearing because in Virginia we have some mandatory minimums. If you're dealing drugs and you have a firearm, there's additional enhanced penalties. What they were uh, complaining to me was, and they said this uh, with reporters there present, hey, because we have a local left-wing prosecutor that will drop any charge that they can, they possibly can with mandatory minimums, we just sometimes don't even, uh, we don't, we don't sometimes even cite them for gun gun violence because, or or uh, or, or or a uh, possession of a firearm uh, while possession with intent to distribute drugs because we know he's going to drop the charge. We know we, we don't even bother to do it because his policy is he drops these charges, and it's a huge huge problem. And then you layer on top of that when you talk about uh, policing. I'm a big believer in community policing. We've in fact is we've demonized our police the last couple of years. And and we see huge vacancy rates all over the country, particularly in areas where they feel like local government doesn't have their back. Well, when you don't have community policing, here's what happens. There's a shooting. There's an incident. We have community policing. There's bonds of trust. Something happens. You can go talk to them. That's a lot of what we talk about ceasefire. Let's let's do community policing. It's something the governor's launched really recruit and beef up that when you have 30, 40 percent vacancy rates, you don't have officers embedded in community. They both build trust and people know to go to them and say, listen, um, uh, this we know we know we we have a strong suspicion of who did the shooting. We know who, where this incident happened instead. And they know who to talk to. They know who are the people to talk to to find to get the straight story of what happened last night. When you don't when you have 30, 40 percent vacancy rates and you can't do community policing, here's what happens. A, a, an officer that you don't have trust with, you don't know, is not recognizable and doesn't know the citizens of that area goes into the community and suddenly starts randomly stopping people and starts questioning them. Well, that builds some distrust because uh, there's there's folks who say, why are you stopping me? Why are you questioning me? And so it actually hurts us. And this is this is the thing I found most remarkable. I do law enforcement roundtables all around uh, Virginia. And by the way, they are they're all in. Even in even in deep blue cities, they're all in this idea of going after repeat offenders. And all of these town halls, I never have one of these law enforcement says the best way to fight violent crime is let's do X, Y, Z gun control. It is we need to go after these repeat violent offenders. But I asked all these law enforcement this simple question. How many of you all are the children, grandchildren or sibling of someone in law enforcement? And inevitably, anywhere between a third to a half of the room will raise their hand. And then I'll ask a follow up question. How many of you all would tell your own child to go into law enforcement? And they always inevitably three fourths, if not entirety room, drops your hand because it used to be the greatest recruiters for law enforcement or people that were law enforcement officers talking about what a what a noble job it is. Now they've been so demonized that they're telling their own children and their young younger siblings, you don't want to go into this profession. That is a long term structural problem we have, and that's why in Virginia at least. Anybody who's not for Virginia's law enforcement, come to Virginia. We launched Operation Bold Blue Line to recruit police. We, You have a governor and attorney general that stand with law enforcement, not against it. You know, and that's the thing. I, I think we need to get back to that era that you talked about where, you know, you, you were trying to foster those relationships between the officers and the communities that they're serving in, uh, as opposed to fostering distrust uh, and unease and hatred uh, for the cops that are out there, you know, busting their ass to to make the community a safer place. Um, going forward, I mean, what are your goals for ceasefire this year? I know that, uh, again, this has been in place for about six months or so, but uh, do you have any benchmarks that, that you'd like this program to meet over the next six months? 
Well, we want to see crime reduced, particularly violent crime, and we're we're tracking that. We'll have more data uh, in December. Uh, preliminary reports are very, very good. I mean, at the end of the day, you have to build investigations, you have to build indictments, and you have to then prosecute these individuals and and obviously get them behind bars and not on the street committing more violent crime. But uh, we want to see a reduction in all 12 of our targeted cities. Our goal is if the preliminary data is good to actually expand it to more cities in Virginia. We think Virginia can really be the model of both holding these people accountable that are that are conducting violent crime and then also investing in young people and, and sending a message. Listen, if if you if you do the if you do a crime with a gun, you're going to be doing extra time and uh, you're not going to have a case now where these local prosecutors are dropping the charges. The Office of the Attorney General isn't going to be doing that. We're going to be going after these repeat violent offenders and making sure they're held accountable and not victimizing more Virginians. Yeah, I mean, uh, the, the the basic message that David Kennedy uh, has described Operation Ceasefire is um, something like, you're going to stop shooting and we'll help you if you let us, but we'll make you if you don't. Uh, <laughs> is that a fair way to describe that Operation Ceasefire in Virginia? It is. And listen, we're doing innovative uh, tactics. We are one of the things we've seen, particularly with youth violence, is uh, people will go on YouTube and they do what they call diss tracks or they'll do diss videos where they will essentially there's a shooting and they'll immediately put this online and it's basically setting up for retaliation. We actually can pinpoint when there is gunfire now, uh, we pinpoint exactly the city block where it happened. And if somebody is uploading one of these uh, so called diss videos online, you know, when you watch YouTube, they'll have those short uh, blurbs, either at the beginning or in the middle of it. We now have the ability of targeting it so targeted that we have our own video that we're right now it's in production. That's going to basically saying, hey, you do you do a crime with a gun. You're doing time. Don't make a situation where your mother or your father, the next time you talk to them, you're on the other side of a glass talking on a phone because you're incarcerated. And uh, we're going to have those very targeted messages to help lower the temperature in the room. Because that's the one thing we have seen as well. You look at the data, if you can get a pause there where people don't retaliate immediately, it can have a dramatic effect. So we're we're doing a, a, a an all of the above approach. We're going after repeat violent offenders. We're trying to get the right messaging out to young people uh, as well and also invest in them so they don't go down the path towards gang activity. You know, and again, this is something that that can and should be bipartisan in nature. There are things that I think Republicans and Democrats can agree on here. Uh, I, I yeah. and I hope that going forward, as you guys start to get more data, that some of the political um, machinations here on the left will start to fade away, and we truly will see a, a nonpartisan approach. Because again, this is a proven track record of success, and at the end of the day. I don't care where you stand on the political spectrum. We should all be in favor of saving lives, reducing violence and making these communities a better place to live. Yeah, I, I have to give some shout outs. While the General Assembly is is in partisan gridlock, a lot of the local Demo Democratic officials, we've had great support with leadership in the city of Petersburg, uh, great support in Roanoke and others that are that are elected Democrats or, or police chiefs appointed by a board controlled by by Democrats and they, the local local officials have been very supportive. I mean, they they recognize the problem. They're so grateful we have gone in and said we're going to partner alongside with you and we're going to uh, use these methods. And so they're very enthusiastic. Unfortunately, to your point, we we have run into a roadblock at times with a, a, a very far left wing anti police anti law enforcement uh, general assembly members on the other side and. Uh, it's a real tough thing. We're able to get it through this time. We hope to expand it. It'll be a lot easier after our legislative elections if we're able to 
to have a Republican majority in the Senate and expand this even more. Absolutely. And I uh, can't help but notice you did not mention uh, the city of Richmond uh, when you were praising Democratic officials. I have my own <laughs> issues with uh, Mayor LeVar Stoney uh, spending money on things like gun buybacks. But we've had you've had pastors in Richmond who have begged for the city to, you know, uh, work with the attorney general's office on operations ceasefire. I know that that has not been the case, but maybe that's a uh, maybe we can delve further into that the next time we have you on the uh, program. Uh, General, again, thank you so much for everything that you do. Thank you for your time today. And if if folks want more information about Operation Ceasefire and how it's working in Virginia, are there any resources there at the AG's website? Yeah, they can go to ag.virginia.gov, and we we have a new section. We're constantly highlighting uh, that, or you know, follow me on Twitter or Facebook. All right, Attorney General Jason Miaris, thank you so much for your time, sir, and look forward to talking to you again very soon. Truly honored. Thank you. I appreciate General Mayor spending some time with us and looking forward to checking back in with him again in a couple of months to see, uh, actually, probably before then, actually, because I, I do have some more questions to talk about in terms of, uh, again, ways to address crime uh, without impacting our right to protect ourselves from violent criminals. Right now, let's turn our attention to today's Armed citizen story, our good deed of the day, and our recidivist report. And I've got a little bit of a different recidivist report than we normally do. Rather than highlight one specific case, I want to highlight what's going on in Annapolis, Maryland, where lawmakers there uh, are, are looking to, quote, tweak the uh, reforms that they have put in place in the juvenile justice system as youth crime is spiking Yeah, not that they're admitting they did anything wrong, mind you, right? Not that they're acknowledging, oh, crap, we made mistakes. No, 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 no. Uh, Just a couple of minor little tweaks to, quote, address the intersection of juvenile justice and gun crimes. Yeah, according to uh, WJLA in Washington, D.C., Senate Judicial Proceedings Chair Will Smith says, uh, quote, I think a lot of the reforms that we put in place over the years will bear fruit and make our system more just and our society more safe, but we have to acknowledge the crisis that we're in. (laughs) Which means that right now, they're not making things better. They're not making society more safe. So how long does it take for these reforms to bear fruit? Uh, Because right now, it is a bitter harvest that lawmakers are reaping in Maryland. Uh, Montgomery County State's Attorney John McCarthy, who, by the way, is uh, one of those helping to defend Montgomery County's sweeping prohibitions on concealed carry, uh, has a list of things that he would like to see changed uh, when lawmakers take up the issue. And I can't disagree with what he's calling for, at least when it comes to juvenile crime, when it comes to you and I's right to bear your arms, uh, different story. But uh, John McCarthy says he wants to see the uh, an end to the complete prohibition on charging those 13 and under. Also wants to see an end to the prohibition on detaining a juvenile for technical probation violations. He wants to end the current system of capping probation at six months. And he wants to end the prohibition on detaining a juvenile for misdemeanors, saying that those misdemeanors are often assaults committed by repeat offenders. Now, think about what changes he's asking for. Because what he's asking to change is the status quo right now. So somebody who's 13 years old, who commits an armed robbery, or who gets on a school bus and tries to shoot another teenager, they're 13, there's no way that individual can be charged as a juvenile. It doesn't even matter how many juvenile adjudications they have in their past. 
There's no way that they can be charged as an adult. They will face the juvenile justice system. Again, the prohibition on detaining a juvenile for technical probation violations. The goal of the juvenile justice system, or so we are told, is rehabilitation. And in order for a troubled teenager to be, or, or tween, or preteen, to be rehabilitated, one of the things that is necessary is going to be intensive supervision. Now, should every technical probation violation result in a detention of a juvenile? Probably not. Should that be an option in those circumstances where uh, you see this kid going down the wrong path, you've got the opportunity to bring him in even for a little bit and give him some of that intensive help? Absolutely, that should be an option. But it's off the table right now in Maryland. And again, probation capped at six months. Think about that. So you've got, again, a... a 13-year-old, maybe a 14-year-old who's been charged as a juvenile with a very serious crime, at most, again, after whatever brief period of detention they receive, at most they're going to be under supervised probation for six months. Now, how do you know? How does the system know that six months is going to be enough time to turn that kid's life around? They don't. But again, the attitude among Maryland Democrats is, well, we don't want these kids locked up in the system for the rest of their life. I, 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 sure, I agree. But if, again, you're not providing the help to turn their lives around, if the only uh, opportunity for rehabilitation they're getting is, you know, a couple of check-ins with a probation officer before they're let loose, what's going to happen? You are more likely to see that youthful offender go back before a court, probably charged with more serious crimes. Again, should probation be extended beyond six months in every circumstance? Probably not. Should that be an option if necessary? Absolutely. And it's not the case in Maryland right now. Again, a prohibition on attaining a juvenile for misdemeanors. How about that? Again, if you commit a misdemeanor crime, or if you're charged with a misdemeanor crime as a juvenile, you're sent home. You're, go, go see mom and dad. Maybe they'll ground you. But we can't keep you. Uh, as McCarthy says, uh, a lot of those misdemeanors are assaults committed by repeat offenders. But what you have right now in Maryland's juvenile justice system, and sadly, a lot of other juvenile justice systems around the country, is a catch and release system. It's not about rehabilitation, certainly not about incarceration. It is about, uh, again, crunching those numbers, right? Uh, but making sure that these young offenders don't go behind bars. Don't uh, uh, be placed on probation. Don't be supervised by the system. And again, how can rehabilitation take place under those conditions? The primary purpose of the juvenile justice system is not incarceration. It is rehabilitation. And systems like Maryland are failing to rehabilitate these young offenders because they're glossing over and brushing away the serious crimes they're committing. So what's going to happen? Well, uh, in Maryland, I guess in uh, September, they're going to have a couple of hearings. But the chairman of the uh, Senate Judicial Proceedings, Will Smith, says that the uh, issue will be a focus of the legislative session in January. So youth crime is spiking in Maryland. And uh, there is no light in a fire under lawmakers. No special session being called, nothing like that. Oh, we'll get to it maybe with a couple of hearings in September, and maybe we'll kick around some bills in January. But uh, he also said, quote, uh, wholesale, or, well, this is from WJLA. Smith says he hears the concerns loud and clear. 
but cautions that wholesale changes aren't likely. He said, quote, that doesn't mean we can't tweak and we are going to tweak. <laughs> okay, great. Um, your ship is sinking. You, you need more than a couple of minor tweaks. You need more than, you know, putting a new coat of paint on this rust bucket. You do need some wholesale changes, and you first need to acknowledge that the reforms that you've put in place with an idea towards helping these kids is actually hurting them. And as a result, it's hurting the public at large. Now, today's Armed citizen story from St. Louis, Missouri, where a, a woman shot two men who broke into the garage where she was living. So this isn't really just a garage. This is a, a woman's residence. According to police, the homeowner was in the rear garage of this property in South City, uh, where she's temporarily living, when the two men broke in just before 3 a.m. on Thursday morning. According to the woman, one of the men charged at her, which is when she shot him and then ran out the door of the garage. Second suspect then started fighting with her. Woman reportedly hit him with her gun, and uh, he was shot in the hand. Both suspects taken to the hospital. Non-life-threatening injuries. At last report, they're listed as stable. Uh, no other information released, but again, based on the circumstances, it sounds like this was a clear-cut case of self-defense. We'll try to bring you more information as it becomes available, hopefully on a uh, Cam and Company next week. And finally today, in the right place, at the right time, we'll able to do the right thing. A volunteer firefighter in uh, Washington State who helped save animals when a veterinary hospital caught on fire. Yeah, I mean, this was some pretty scary moments. Uh, here is the uh, hero uh, who says he's no hero, by the way. But, yeah, I, I think that qualifies. Ryan McNett, a, a volunteer firefighter and neighbor of the uh, Sella Veterinary Hospital, said he was leaving his home and he spotted smoke from the hospital. He said, I just happened to be in the right place at the right time. I'm super happy the animals got out. It was just before 7 p.m. back on July 21st. He was uh, heading out when he and his fiance saw black smoke. Now, as I mentioned, McNett is a volunteer firefighter, but he was off duty. He didn't have his equipment with him, um, but he knew he had to act. So he went and checked on the building while his fiance, Caitlin Temple, called 911. McNett said something next to the stairs out back was on fire next to the building. He said there were no cars in the parking lot. So I just started beating on the doors and windows. I looked for a garden hose nearby since the fire hadn't caught on the building yet, but he couldn't find a hose. And then the fire is growing, so he knew that he had to get inside. Uh, he used a rock from a garden, broke down the door frame because the windows had bars across them. Other passerby saw what was going on, and they also stopped to help, uh, McNett anyway, uh, and he was able to get inside. First, he rescued an orange kitten. They went back to search for other animals. At that point, a hospital employee arrived and told him, hey, you know what? We've got some other animals inside. Here's where they are. So he was able to locate two more dogs, or excuse me, two more cats, as well as a small dog. McNett said there was a large dog in a kennel towards the back of the building near where the fire was. Another veterinary nurse helped guide me to where I, I found a, a large lab. He said, I went back in to find him, and that's when I took in a puff of black smoke. So, you know, again, inhaling the smoke. At that point, he hears sirens, thankfully. And he knew that uh, firefighters were there on scene. They were able to get in the building. They were able to safely rescue the last dog. He says, I waited at the doorway, and I was yelling at him for him to hurry up. He said, they came out with the dog and took him to the front of the with, the with the veterinary nurse, and he wasn't breathing. He wasn't awake. His tongue was out of his mouth. He said, I thought it passed. He said, but we got him on the grass out front, and they put oxygen on his nose. And sure enough, he started to breathe. 
So once all of the animals were safe and sound, McNatt started to focus on himself and uh, realized that he also needed aid. Paramedics took him to the hospital. He stayed overnight. Thankfully, uh, is okay. He has been uh, lauded, as you can imagine, in the community. He said, I'm humbled. He said there were a lot of people that helped and did a lot of things. The veterinary nurses showed up, the passerby, firefighters. He said, I led the charge, but as soon as the help was there, it was all of us. He said, I want to thank everyone involved. They should all be thanked. It wasn't me. Uh, according to the uh, fire safety specialist and fire investigator of the Yakima County Fire Marshal's Office, the fire, the fire was caused because somebody just dissed a cigarette and apparently didn't put it out. So, um, especially this time of year, hot, dry conditions. Yeah, make sure if you are smoking something that that thing is extinguished when you drop it on the ground. The uh, clinic uh, completely gutted at least the rear half. Severe uh, secondary heat and smoke damage to the rest of the building, according to the uh, director of the hospital. Unsure when they're going to be able to resume service, but uh, again, thankfully, uh, the animals made it out. There was, unfortunately, one of the cats who passed away from a smoke inhalation, but uh, most of the animals inside are alive today. Again, thanks to the uh, quick thinking and fast action of this uh, volunteer firefighter, Ryan McNett, and all of those, again, who came to his aid uh, and the aid of these animals in need. So, uh, Mr. McNett, tip of the cap, thank you very much for your very, very good deed. All right, that is going to do it now for this edition of Barry and Arms Cam and Company. And uh, hopefully I will see you on Wednesday. Um, there is always a possibility I'll be back because, you know, sometimes I just can't get enough. But uh, I am anticipating that I will not be seeing you until Wednesday. But until we talk again, uh, make sure that you uh, check out BarryandArms.com. We will be updating the website between now and next Wednesday with all of the latest Second Amendment news and information. Uh, if I'm not there... My uh, erstwhile colleagues will be contributing their uh, stories and uh, keeping you up to date on everything going on around the country. And if you like what you see, I'd also encourage you to become a VIP member. Just go to barryandarms.com slash subscribe using the promo code GUNRIGHTS, and you can get a significant savings on your VIP or your VIP gold membership, which gets you exclusive content from the Town Hall Media family of websites, not just Barry and Arms. But yes, if you become a VIP member, you're going to get that exclusive content at Barry and Arms as well. It's our way of saying thanks for showing your support because it matters a great deal. So thank you again. Have a great weekend. Try to stay cool out there. We'll see you back here soon. Until then, be well, be safe, and be free.